Good to see all of you this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, as we continue our series in the book of Hebrews, we've got this week and then two more weeks, and we'll finish up our series in the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to be talking about faith and really the evidences of faith and what is faith and being reminded about what faith is. Because I think even within the Christian community and, and within God's people, there's a lot of misunderstanding and confusion about what faith really is all about. We talk about being men and women and people of faith. Do we really grasp what we're speaking of there when we talk about that? And I hope to maybe, you know, really simplify this and clarify a lot of this for us today. Um, in, in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, because as I shared last week, when you come now into chapter 13, the author begins to tell us about evidences of faith. And remember, we've already seen in Hebrews 11 that, that uh, the author says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then he says earlier in chapter 11, but, but faith is being sure of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things not seen. So I think one of the things that, that we need to clear up is that many even Christians uh, think of faith as something that's very nebulous. Uh, you know, we even talk about things of faith by using phrases like blind faith or leaps of faith. As if that God wants us as his people to just sort of go out there and just sort of, you know, walk out into nothingness and just trust him. Now, obviously, faith is trusting God, yes. But it is always much more concrete than leaps of faith and blind faith. There is no such thing like that in the Bible. Every time God calls us to faith, to trust Him, it's always in something very concrete and very sure, something that we don't have to be confused about, but that, that we can have great clarity in. This is the way He worked all through the Bible. I mean, when, when God led His people in the Old Testament, He said, I'm going to give you a pillar of fire and a cloud. That's me. That is my presence in that form. Follow that. That was very concrete. That wasn't no leap. It wasn't like if you were like, I don't really know where God wants me to go. No, God says, here's my form and where I go, you just follow. Okay, God, I can do that. I see your fire by day. Or the fire by night and the, and the cloud by day. I can do that. I mean, even in the New Testament, it wasn't Peter's idea to get out of a perfectly good boat and walk on water. That was Jesus' idea. Jesus invited Peter to get out of the boat. He says, Peter, get out of the boat and come to me. So Peter wasn't just blindly taking a leap of faith. Yes, he was trusting in Jesus, but it was in what Jesus had revealed to him. Jesus says, Peter, trust me, get out of the boat and come to me. And so Peter got out of the boat and went. See, living by faith is not living blindly and taking leaps in our life. 
What living by faith is for a Christian is simply living in response of obedience to what God has already revealed. That's living by faith. You and I are people of faith whenever we do the things that God is telling us to do. Again, going back to the Old Testament. When God told his people, I'm going to give you that land and I'm calling it the promised land. And yeah, you're going to have to fight some battles, but actually I'm going to fight them for you. You trust me. That's the land. I don't care what giants are in there and all of that. I'm going to give it to you. So again, they clearly knew. It was concrete. They didn't like, well, I'm not sure that's the land God wants us to have or not. No, it was very clear. That's the land God wants us to have. And God said he'll give it to us. Well, when they came back and said, we don't want to go because there's giants in there and there's more of them than there is of us and all of that. Again, it wasn't that they didn't know what God wanted them to do. It was they were faithless. They were not trusting in what God had revealed. God said, I'll give it to you. Go. And they sat down and said, no. And that's why the Bible says they were faithless. They were unbelieving. Because God clearly and very concretely said, this is what you need to be doing. So again, when we talk about living by faith, we're simply talking about what has God revealed to us? Are we really living the way God told us to? If so, that's living by faith. You see And when we choose to say, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I'm still going to try to do things the way I want to do them and think that I'm going to come out on top, that's being faithless. That's being unbelieving. And that's why when we come into Hebrews 13 and we talk about evidences of faith, these are simply the things that as Christians... As those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, these are the things that we should be continually doing. This is what our our life should be marked by. This is how people should identify us as a distinctive and distinguished followers of Jesus Christ. It's by these things that he talks about in Hebrews 13 and other places as well. Because obviously this is not an exhaustive list, if you will, of the things that God has revealed to us as his people that we should be doing. But here's the thing. Many Christians get so focused on what they trying to figure out what they don't know God has yet revealed. And the best way to live is actually to focus and put more attention and energy into doing the things that God has already told us to be doing. When we do that, then the other things that he hasn't told us yet will become clear, but God is not going to reveal other things to us if he's not seeing that we're already not doing the things that he's clearly told us to be doing. For instance, that's even why many Christians today, you know, struggle and, and they don't have that satisfaction and fulfillment that God says we should be having. And they're not really experiencing the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give us, even though we're saved. Because we're not really living by faith. We're not doing the things in our life that we should be doing. What are some of those things? Notice he says in chapter 13, verse 1, brotherly love must continue. 
He's telling us there, by the way, the word there is Philadelphia in the Greek language. He says, as brothers and sisters in Christ, you all should continually be loving each other. There should be friendship and affection and partnership that you all have with each other. And notice he says, it must continue. It must persist. So many Christians today really don't have brotherly love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. There either is no relationships really there, there are no real friendships and affection and partnerships with other Christians, and if there are, they're short-lived. We get offended, we walk away from each other, we don't work through our problems, we, somebody offends us and we just, we get mad, we take our toy, we go home. We're not acting like people of faith because people of faith will love their brothers and sisters continually through it all, through thick and thin, because we're family. We're a spiritual family born from the same womb is what the original language means. Even as brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I have the same father, our father in heaven. We've been born through the same blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is a bond that exists between Christians that is even stronger than fam family bonds. Because we even have more in common with one another. And it's so important that this friendship and affection and partnership not only be cultivated, but it continue. Because in the Gospels, Jesus says one of the signs of the last days is that the love of many will grow cold. That people really won't love each other. They'll be all about themselves, but they really won't enter into friendships and partnerships with anybody, much less their brothers and sisters in Christ. And if they do... Something comes up in that relationship, they walk away from each other rather than having that brotherly love continue. If you and I are to be men and women of faith, this needs to characterize our life. This is an evidence that we are. Because we can claim to be people of faith. But the Bible always says the, the evidence has got to be there. You see that, that's why James tells us, and it's no contradiction to the things that Paul and other people wrote, that faith without works is dead. In other words, works there being evidence. I can claim to be a person of great faith, but unless my life as a Christian is characterized by brotherly love, then I'm just blowing hot air. Then he goes on to say this. We also need to be people who are hospitable, especially to those that we don't know well. He says, do not neglect hospitality because through it, some have entertained angels even without knowing it. It is the concept of being open and welcoming and warm and even generous to those that we don't know very well. 
It's obviously a great importance in a local church. Because hopefully through the days and years that the church goes on, that we continue to work on building our own relationships with one another and making them stronger, but that hopefully our doors are always open and always welcome to those that we don't know yet to come in and maybe join us. And everybody that walks through those doors, if we are people of faith, should feel open, welcomed, loved, And that's not just true with us as we relate to people coming into our church, but how we should be out there in the world. We should have hospitality. We should be willing to entertain others as guests and treat them as valued guests. I love what the Bible says. It says, do you realize that that you could at some point in your life entertain an angel in human form and not even know it? Because obviously you don't know each other. And yet by the way you treat them, think of those reports. The angel goes back to heaven and said, well, Jeff treated me like dirt. And that's why it's important that you and I also be conscious that as men and women of faith, our faith is to be exhibited and expressed all the time. See, again, there is no, there's no compartmentalization and, and separating sacred and secular, if you will. Well, here, here's, my, here's my spiritual life, and then over here's my other life. No, no. If we're men and women of faith, we are sort of on call 24-7. Everyone that we come in contact with, whether we know them or not, our faith is on the line. Will we be people of faith and be warm and welcoming and open and generous to those that maybe we don't know very well? And then in verse 3, he says, And shouldn't we as Christians... Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and those ill-treated as those you too felt their torment. Now, especially in this context of Hebrews, Hebrews was written right after the great fire in Rome where the Christians got blamed and Nero put all the blame on the Christians and, and Christians became very much a persecuted group within the Roman Empire and many Christians were in prison. And so specifically, he's telling us as Christians, even back then, have you forgotten about your brother and sister in Christ who's sitting in prison because of their stand for Jesus Christ? He's saying that you and I as Christians, if we're going to be people of faith, we've got to feel what others feel. There's got to be some empathy and sympathy and sensitivity to what others go through. That's part of being people of faith. When you and I become unfeeling towards others and towards what they go through, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially whenever they're suffering for the cause of Christ at that moment, and maybe we're not, he's saying, you and I've got to not only pray for them, we got to feel for them and put ourselves in that place and be mindful of them. And do what we can do to maybe encourage them in that moment. That's being people of faith. 
Again, so often it's easy for us, even as Christians, to get so consumed with our own lives that we don't really pay a lot of attention to the hurting people even around us. And I even mentioned this on Wednesday night to our group that comes out on Wednesday night because even again as brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I can come to church and be sort of so so focused on us and not take the opportunity and the advantages that we have when we do come together to maybe think that the person sitting next to me or the person sitting near me may be really hurting. And maybe all they need right now is a smile. Or maybe what they need right now is just an encouraging word. Or just somebody to come up and put their arm around them and say, hey, can I pray for you or something? We even talked about this with the gals on Thursday night at the women's Bible study, how sometimes just a small act of kindness and politeness can go a long way in our day and age. That even though it might not be a big deal to us, it's a big deal to others. I shared the fact that when I uh, first came to the Valley and worked at Starbucks, that, that when you're on the other side of the counter, it's actually easy to remember the customers that were nice to you. Because there are so many that come in who treat people in those service entities as sort of less than and and they can be very condescending and even very hateful and not very nice. And I realize that can go both ways. There are baristas out there that need slap too. I, I get that. <laughs> but I can remember that just having someone come up and smile and say thank you for the drink, that stood out because you'd have 50 people who'd come through the line that just acted like, you know, no big deal. And you'd have the one person that would just, something small like that, and that's what you would remember. You know, the Bible tells us that the second greatest commandment is to love others as we want to be loved. Not only to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to love our neighbor as ourself. To put ourself in other people's place and to treat them as we would want to be treated if we were in that situation. This is exactly what he's talking about here. If people are hurting, are we hurting with them? It's the way the body of Christ is supposed to operate. Paul even said we should be creating within the body of Christ an environment where we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we're weeping with those who are weeping. And there's some empathy, you see, in our lives. Then there's another evidence of faith. And it concerns our view and the celebration and our value of the marriage institution that God created, verse 4. He says, marriage must be honored among all. God is the one who came up with marriage. He's the one who invented it. Therefore, one of the ways you and I honor marriage, that we show as people of faith that we value marriage, is that if we are married, 
We be the husbands and wives that God says we should be. That's one way we honor marriage. Another way we honor marriage as people of faith is to stand up for the way God defines marriage. Not the way other people define marriage, but the way God defines marriage. That's the way we honor marriage. And then he says, oh, and by the way, the marriage bed must be kept undefiled because God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. In other words, God will bring about very severe consequences to those who, again, do not live within the boundaries that God has created even for sexual activity. That's being people of faith. And let's not forget something here. God is not anti-sex. God is the one that created it. He, it was his idea, not ours. But God simply says, if you want to enjoy sex that I have created and celebrated, if you want to enjoy that at the highest level, here's the one and only way to do that. You do that solely within the marriage bond. You never, ever take that gift of sex outside of marriage in any way. So obviously that means any, if, if you and I are married, any sexual activity outside of marriage in any form, that's wrong. And if we're not married, that means that until we are married, we remain pure. In fact, even for those of you that are single today, you might say, well, how can I honor marriage? How can I show the world as a follower of Jesus Christ that I value God's institution of marriage? I'll tell you how as a single person. Keep yourself pure until you get married. That's what he's saying here. Because God understands more than we do how his creation of sex and marriage can be most highly enjoyed. You and I are the ones that take these great gifts of God and we mess them up. And they create for us and our society all kinds of pain and problems and lack of fulfillment and lack of satisfaction simply because we're not trusting God. If we truly trusted God, then we would go, God, if that's what you say, if, if your way's best, then I'll only do it your way. If you and I say, well, I know that's what God says, but I'm going to do it my way, then obviously we're not being people of faith. Because faith at its bottom line is trusting what God has said about things. And then living in obedient response to what God has said. See, this is how concrete it is. Being people of faith isn't like, well, you know, I don't really know what God wants, but I'm just going to throw myself out there. No. You'll never find that in the Bible. Never. What you will find is where God says, this is what I want you to do. Will you trust me and do it? That's faith. And when you and I clearly know this is what God wants us to do and we don't do it, then we're being faithless and unbelieving. Then number five, verse five. 
He also says, and of course this goes along even with the whole thing of being married and sexual conduct and whatever. He says, oh, and your conduct must be free from the love of money. And you must learn to be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you and I will never abandon you. Obviously, one of the reasons why people go outside of marriage for sex is because they think it's better on the other side. Grass is greener, not satisfied with what I have type of thing. And then he links that with verse 5 by saying, oh, and by the way, as followers of Jesus Christ and people of faith, we must never come to places in our life where we allow material things and money to be our primary influence and driving force of our decisions and choices in life. That should never be. And yet, can I tell you, in my position, I've heard many Christians come to me and try to justify the decisions that they make in life And do it by using material things and money. I'm taking this new position in my company because it's a raise for me. How's that going to affect you spiritually? I don't know. But I'm doing it because it's going to give me more money. Never taking into consideration how it might affect them spiritually. Where God says, look, I've told you if you'll trust me... I'll take care of you and meet your needs. So shouldn't your first priority be taking care of my spiritual life first? That whatever decision and choices we make as Christians, if we're people of faith, we're going to put that as the number one priority. Have you heard Christians recently tell you those things? Here's here's why I'm choosing the thing that I'm choosing. Because it's going to help me spiritually. I don't hear that much. What I hear is, I'm making this decision because it's going to help me get ahead financially. Because I'm going to make more money. And he's saying, that's not being a person of faith. It's not that having things and having money is wrong. It is living my life allowing material things and money to be the dominant influence in my life rather than what is best for me and my family spiritually. I've even seen this take place in our own church and other churches over the years as pastors. I've had people who said, we're moving to another state. I got a job opportunity somewhere else. I'm going to be making more money. And I sit there and I go, that's all nice, but where's that going to leave you spiritually? And then especially when I hear back and hear, well, we never could find a church. We've sort of drifted away from church and we don't even go anymore. We were thriving back there, but I put this above that, and now look where I'm at spiritually. And I think that's what he's trying to get across to us today. Not only not to make money and material things a domination or influence in my life, but then he goes on to say, and learn to be content. To live in the fullness of God himself. To be satisfied that God is enough. Because God says, 
you have me. Am I not enough for you? That you need to fill your life with all these other things that you think again are going to fulfill you and satisfy you. And yet I'm here in your life and I'm not enough. I've told you I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to abandon you. You got me. And how many times as people of faith do we say, well, God, it's nice that I've got you, but that's not enough. I need this. I need that. I mean, when it really comes down to it in the nitty gritty, it's this. It's this principle. That you and I could have everything in the world. And if we don't have Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, we've got nothing. Do you hear me now? And let me say this. It also then means the opposite. That if I have nothing in this world, but I have Jesus Christ, I have everything. That's what it's saying. How many of us live that way? That's being a person of faith. Of living in the fullness of God. Sometimes I wonder as Christians if we really even understand what that means. To live in the fullness of God and be satisfied with God alone. Because I guarantee you when we get to that place and we can live there. We actually then enjoy all the other fringe things that God throws in on top of it more. When you and I don't live in the fullness of God and God's not enough, no amount of other stuff and things that we try to bring into our life ever will fulfill and satisfy. And God knows that. And that's why God says, trust me. Put me first. Live in my fullness and you'll really be able to enjoy all this other stuff. Rather than living for stuff and trying to fit me in. He goes on to say in verse 6, So that we can say as followers of Jesus Christ with confidence, with courage and boldness, The Lord is the one who helps me. Therefore, I'm never going to be afraid of what man can do to me or what circumstances may come. I've got the Lord and he is my helper. He's the one who brings the right help at exactly the right time. And if you and I have the Lord as our helper, what other help do we need? Paul even said to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Do we live in fear? Anxiety? Angst? About our life and circumstances and all that? Or do we rest in the Lord and trust in Him and believe that He is our helper? Verse 7. Another way you and I as men and women of faith give evidence of our faith is to be followers of our spiritual leaders. In the next couple of weeks, he's going to talk more about this and we're going to have more to share about this. But for today, he simply says in verse seven, remember your leaders. Be mindful of those providing spiritual leadership in your life, especially those who speak God's message to you or teach God's message to you. 
He says, reflect on the outcome of their lives. He's saying, pay very close attention to the steady march forward of the way they live their life and imitate or follow their faith or faithfulness. It could even be translated. I'll simply say this at this point. One of the things that that also means, obviously, for someone like myself is, I better be an example example worth emulating and following. That responsibility is on all of us as spiritual leaders, but the opposite of that is true as well. Why does God give us pastors and spiritual leaders in the church? So that those within the church have someone to follow and imitate our faith. Our steady march forward of the way we live our lives. Again, I'll just say this. That's one of the reasons why I believe God says be part of a church. And be part of a church where you have spiritual leaders. So many today are out there trying to live on their own as Christians and they never place themselves under any spiritual leadership and somehow think again, they're going to thrive spiritually. That's like saying, well, God, I know that that's your way, but I got a better way. I don't like church. I don't like to go to church. I've had bad experience at church. I mean, we can throw it all out there. Bottom line is... That's not being a person of faith. A person of faith is one that will do life God's way. And God says, I'm going to call spiritual leaders to be leaders, and I'm going to call you as the people of God to follow your spiritual leaders, especially imitating their faith and faithfulness. And then he says this in verse 8, and this will be our last verse for today, and we'll pick it up in verse 9 next week. This verse may seem very disjointed. Like, where did that come from? But it actually fits in perfectly with what he's talking about already and what he will continue to talk about in the following verses. When he says, oh, and by the way, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus doesn't change. Well, how, how does that apply to being a person of faith in this way? He's simply saying that the object of our faith never changes. Because our faith really, at the end of the day, is in a person. It's not in a church. It's not in a religion. It's not in a... Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where our anchor of our faith goes. And if Jesus Christ never changes, then the object of our faith never changes. We're just called to trust Jesus. And the other thing that this is cool about, and why he brings it in here, is he's saying, all these standards, if you will, that God has shared with us, the way we should be living our lives, the evidences of faith, he says, oh, by the way, here's the the great thing for followers. God is never going to ask us to sort of follow a moving target. No. 
It's not like, okay, what was true of God and what God said was right and wrong 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago is somehow over time and culture and all this. It's going to change. No. The standard of God will always remain the same. What was morally wrong in the Old Testament is morally wrong today. What was morally right in the Old Testament is morally right today. Because God never changes. His opinion and His viewpoint on things don't change like people's do. He's not fickle like people are. If God said this is right, then it's right for all time. If He said it's wrong, it's wrong for all time. And we can be sure of that. And that's good being a person of faith because like I said, then we never have to think, Okay, now I'm going to go and start going in this direction and I'm going to start doing this. But what if a week or two weeks from now, God said, nah, I changed my mind. Now it's another way. No, we never have to worry about that. It's always going to be the same. Because Jesus Christ is unchangeable in his character and nature. He's never going to change. And that should give us great stability and steadiness and assurance in our life. The author of Hebrews is calling upon his people. You say you are people of faith, that you trust God. Then he says, let me at the end of my letter give you evidences of being people of faith. Let your brotherly love continue for each other. He then says, oh, be hospitable. Honor marriage. Be empathetic. Don't be covetous, but be content. Be steadfast. Follow your spiritual leaders. And remember that the object of your faith never changes. Let's commit ourselves to being people of faith. Let's not talk about it. Let's begin to express it and exemplify it in our life. And just in these eight verses, that's a full-time job right there. If we, if we just took that right there and we started to focus and concentrate on that, we'd have plenty to do. Let's rise up and do it. And be a witness to this world that desperately needs to see what real faith is all about. Father, we thank you for your powerful word. And we pray as your people that we would allow your word to penetrate our hearts and our minds and to transform us and change us. Help us, Lord, to always be open to your voice in our lives. And not shut you off or shut you down and put up walls and put up barriers. But let you come in and do what you want to do. You call us to be people of faith. To trust you. You tell us that without faith it is impossible to please you. You tell us that faith is not something nebulous, but actually something very concrete and sure because it is based on what you have revealed clearly to us. All you're asking of us is to trust in what you've said. And God, may we do that beginning today. 
May we trust in your word and what you've said. May we believe truly that your way is best above all other ways. That you are the one and only true God and we will surrender it all to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our final song this morning?